0: Welcome to Shooting the Shit. I'm Oscar. And I'm Alex. We were random roommates.
1: And now we're random best mates. Having had the chance to sort of review the larger systemic and structural issues that are at play in a lot of conversations in society, we wanted to now transition over into these next three parts in which we will be talking with various individuals that have made it a part of their career and their journey to truly connect with people. In this first part, we want to showcase our friend Anna, who has had the opportunity to work in the journalism field. And we hope you enjoy. And here's the episode.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Anna.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: You could start out with a quick intro.
2: Introduce myself? Sure. My name is Anna. I am an assistant editor at The Atlantic. And I met you two in college Um, as a sophomore, I remember. I'm from Venezuela and currently quarantining in Brooklyn with my sisters. Is that enough? That's fantastic. (laughs) It's a good intro.
1: (laughs) Sweet. Well, thank you for joining us today. You want to hit with any opening questions, Alex, that you have off the bat?
0: I guess just like, yeah, to start with, what's like a... We're going to go with the cliched question of what's a day in the life, maybe like kind of broadly, not necessarily how it is during quarantine, because everyone's Mm -hmm. like quarantine day in the life is totally different than their job. But like, because what does your job involve?
2: Yeah, my so I the Atlantic exists in the web like so many other publications, and also physically. So there's a print issue that comes out every month. And I think people are most used to seeing it when they fly, because the kiosks in the airport, the Hudson News all carry the, the Atlantic and a lot of other magazines. So I work with that team, which is its own little pocket within the newsroom. So obviously, there's communication with the web folks, but but in more ways than people might realize, they're two completely separate editorial enterprises. And so my job is basically to assist in every way you can imagine the writers and editors who are putting together every issue every month. So... It starts out with brainstorming and research once a story is assigned, you know, working on that with both the writer and the editor. And then once it's filed, everything from fact checking to copy editing, to kind of working with the InDesign program that we use to to put the issue together and then once it's morphed or kind of what's the word just it's translated online there's a lot that goes on as well so I I think I'm actually the only person in the team who works with every single department with the checkers with the copy editors with the art designers with the writers with you know because I I kind of help everyone that's that's it in a nutshell i'm a generalist yeah and it actually i think it makes my job very fun even though i'm the lowest of the low in what is actually kind of a pronounced hierarchy i didn't know that about journalism or like magazine journalism but there's a very clear set of kind of authority ladder
1: mm-hmm.
2: Sorry, that was very not eloquent, but... um,
1: What are the rankings?
2: The rankings... Well, it varies actually from print to web, but in the print, it's, it's the editor of the magazine, then the deputy editor, then a few senior editors, then the managing editor, then the head of research, the head of copy, and then the checkers, and then the copy editors... And then me, (laughs) and I'm the lone wolf at the very bottom of this, you know, ladder. And then so and but I do like all of the things that everyone you know does above me.
1: What one could maybe say you're the you're the the one piece in a Jenga tower. You know that if they pull (laughs) it out, it will collapse.
2: Actually, yeah. Like the days that I feel the least motivated, I just remember like they might not know or recognize what I'm up to here, but as soon as I'm gone, they're going to die. Because <laughs> I am essential in in so many respects.
1: How's the, because you mentioned earlier about sort of that process of, you know, brainstorming and being in the pitch room and then assigning writers, proceeding to the research and fact check. What in sort of that whole development process from end to st- have you found the most exciting or engaging for you um, at this point in time?
2: You know, I actually was maybe misleading. I'm not as part, I I wish I were more part of the development process of story ideas than I actually am. I, I went, we have these monthly story idea meetings where all of the editors get together and brainstorm what is going to be covered in the upcoming issue. And those are very private, confidential conversations that are usually then transformed into memos and emails and slacks. So I I can get a sense by the bits and pieces of it. But I actually attended my first meeting like two weeks ago. And it was very intimidating and I did not speak, but I did write an email two days after to the editor sharing some thoughts about gaps and just ideas about things. And so I feel like I find it exciting just talking to colleagues about things that I'm thinking of and stories that are upcoming that I think are super important or just intriguing for some reason but the I mean with quarantine it's been hard to have a lot of that because it used to happen very spontaneously kind of just in the office and so now more than ever before I feel very detached from the story conception process just because If you're not part of a Zoom meeting, you're just not part of the conversation, you know, as opposed to like maybe, I don't know, somebody even in an office, you know, you might stop by because you need something or once people exit the office, you might run into them and they might say something or there's just so many more opportunities for encounters and conversation in person.
0: It sounds like the the stories are just kind of floating in the air in like the workspace and people are just kind of like running into it or like grabbing it out. But when you're all like at home, like where is that shared space where you can like get the, get the ideas? I was interested in kind of getting a glimpse into what those like behind closed doors like idea meetings look like. Obviously, you know don't you, don't share whatever can't go out of those closed doors.
2: No, honestly, they're very they've changed in quarantine. They're not the way that they used to be run in person. But it's it's the simplest version of a meeting you could ever imagine. It's just everyone who participates coming in with a set of potential stories that they're excited about and that they have done some prior research on. So it's it's not something like, I read this morning in the Times, something that would be interesting. No, you've, you've done more prep work than that. And then they present the ideas that they're most excited about and they're discussed as a group. And so I think maybe something that is, that would be different than just having a conversation about a topic with a friend is that I believe they are very calculated in the sense that when a story is thought of it's not just about oh this is fascinating and this would make for a great read it's also like who could realistically write this and what would the reporting entail and who would edit it and, and in what issue would it, I don't know. I I do think that there's a lot of, which is just part of being a company, I guess, and having to put out a product on deadline, but there's a lot of just like questions about the time constraints and the resources and who can do this and could we convince them to do this and could they do it on time and kind of what I find to be boring things, but like necessary for the thing to actually get done. And then it's just back and forth and it can go for hours. Cause it's, you know, there are nine to 10 editors, um, all very opinionated, all very kind of informed readers. So you could imagine <laughs> talking about anything, especially anything big or, controversial or complicated going on.
1: I think one of the words that caught me here was boring, in particular because it's sort of associated with what you mentioned on logistics and hierarchy. And do you think in any way that whole concept has impacted this need for creativity that many people think is part and necessary for journalism? You know, sort of what's your take on that and what you've been able to see?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, that, that's a really good question. And I think that the Atlantic specifically has evolved on several of the points that you raised over the last 10 to 5 to last year. As it has become a more newsy newspaper-y place. I mean, I think the Atlantic 10 years ago would never have done like a breaking news story. That, That was something that, you know, the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal would do. And the Atlantic would be the place where you would kind of, after you've been thinking about the breaking news for a couple of days, you would then see the analysis. I mean, obviously, that's still done um but I actually think that despite my mention of like logistics and boring stuff I think that the process the processes in place in the newsroom are such that like you can actually do things like very quickly and and you can totally work off of like last minute ideas and like spontaneity so I, I don't mean to say that um that everything is kind of like things are like stagnant in any way. So that that's just on the point of like boring that I mentioned. Um, but the hierarchy and, and the problem of certain voices not being heard because, because people are just kind of intimidated or afraid of, of speaking up, I think it's definitely an issue that the newsroom, the magazine Is grappling with and hasn't really known how to deal with super well yet. Um, I mean, I think it's on people's minds, but there is a sense, and I think this is something industry-wide, that young people or kind of people not necessarily in, in high positions need to kind of pay their dues and I don't know. I mean probably you could mention you can you could speak up and it's not like you would be shut down. Somebody would listen to you, but they wouldn't take you seriously. They wouldn't really follow through on your suggestions probably 99% of the time. And I think it's actually reflected in our coverage. Like I think the Atlantic is seen as a moderate kind of centrist place that is secure. Like I don't think the most radical, exciting out there ideas are being kind of first implanted by the Atlantic. I think the Atlantic will like pick up on what's in vogue kind of in young circles and in older circles once it's been in the ether for a while and percolating and it's safe. But I don't think it's kind of, you know, it's sometimes big controversial ideas are explored but in a way that is I think still protected and I don't know I, I want to give you an example just so my words are not so abstract but I can not think of one so when I do I'll have to say it
1: <laughs> yeah we'll circle back to it no worries no but I think that that makes sense I think that's an interesting point because I think one thing I've gathered so far is in my, for some reason, and I don't know where you stand on this, Alex, of like seeing any like media outlet or, you know, publication. I've never really framed it in my head as the fact that it operates on the same principles and is a company at the end of the day. And so I think like all these things that you outline coming from another set of like industry and companies where it's like, it's the same kind of basic issues and that whole point of, oh someone will hear your idea but not necessarily like bring it in like out of courtesy and respect they'll do it but like in the grand scheme it will be there's a sliver of a chance that it will make it into anything larger and I think that's one of those balances where it's like it's a media outlet focused on the premise of communication but then within and internally there's all these other just self day teamwork communication issues that Themselves aren't uh, always as smooth as can be
2: totally totally and there is you know I was talking with a with a colleague who is also a friend about this um recently I wish that I'd known the journalism industry prior to internet analytics and all these tools that any website has to evaluate how many visitors it has and who is clicking on what and how long are you sticking with a page and and all of this data on audience, I think has, I only know journalism with that tool and it's, it's, so clear to me that it's it's been obviously in many ways an empowering tool and and one that has led to profitability I guess because you know you can you you know who who is coming to your product and and what they like and how they behave but that also means that you can tailor what you do so that you just give people what they want and I think that with something like the news and then analysis of the news and interpretation of situations and problems and events that are happening in a country in a society it's it's not good to be guided by what people want because sometimes what people want is not what they need to hear or you know should know like it's like, you know, if, if the internet were, I guess it is tailored for what people want, but if, but if it, you know, if the times were what people wanted, maybe we would just see like cat pictures all day and like stories of hot women. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's, and so that is also another consideration that I'm sure other companies also have, um, especially tech companies of just like there what started as like a very good perhaps innocuous product is then kind of fine-tuned and tailored in such a way to make people come to it again and again and again and again and again and again and then it's something else that is perhaps not as beneficial or innocuous as it started if that makes sense
1: that does make sense with that said Kind of a big question, building off on that, because I think this may have alluded to it a bit (laughs) in the sense that like maybe, you know, media, journalistic outlets follow this trend. What do you see as the role and purpose of, uh, you know, say the Atlantic or or maybe of journalism as a whole and, and how that, you know, especially given sort of what's happened with all this like data analytics stuff that allows them to then become a very product oriented thing as opposed to maybe this other higher level focus.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm an optimist, perhaps not by nature, but by training and perhaps naive and idealistic in this sense. But I do believe that journalism should serve the people and that it it should be the space where you arrive to better understand the world around you. And and it should encapsulate absolutely everything. You know, it should help you better understand politics, friendship, the economy, science, education. I mean, all of human existence, I think, is, is at least like the, you know, that's obviously not, possible it's it's an impossible project in a way but I think that should always be the ambition and I mean within journalism again as I mentioned before like there's what the times does which is trying to basically record all of human happenings all the time like anything that occurs any event there's something written about it and then there's a place like the Atlantic which is not as comprehensive it's not as as ambitious I guess because it's also not as big but it tries to take account of all of those hundreds of events that are happening and kind of give sense to them and and piece them together and and try to give insight I guess and grounding and direction to to readers. I mean, I think that the last thing that I would hope journalism does is entrench people in beliefs that they already have, or, you know, contribute to making readers take things for granted. Or, I mean, I think the best example to give over the last four years is, is Trump. Trump in a way has been the enemy of journalism but also its greatest blessing because it has contributed to such an increase in readership because he sells like any trump tweet can be turned into a story that'll have like millions of readers you're guaranteed to get game traffic if you write anything about trump especially if it's something kind of related to controversy or, or something scandalous that he's said, that's not to say that Trump has been the only story of the last four years. I mean, obviously, he's pivotal, and, and you do have to always take him into consideration because he's the president of the most powerful country in the world, but not every story should be about Trump. And there are incentives in place to make every story somehow about Trump because he attracts a big audience. And so I don't think journalism you, should you be You said like earlier that,
0: that but you a would lot hate of it for, is even I'm paraphrasing a little bit, you would hate for the most news prestigious organizations kind of to turn into echo chambers to so basically just like give they, back what their readers problem. want. So do you have any thoughts on like I guess back in my day? they always said that the New York Times was a liberal publication and the Wall Street Journal was a conservative publication. Now with like the onset of like internet news, you know, there's like the the whole spectrum and now Wall Street Journal and the New York Times could both be considered like centrist uh, publications. Do you have any thoughts on like the polarization of like news outlets and like, yeah, where that's going?
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's been a really hot topic, actually, not, among my colleagues like over the last two months because of that Harper's letter. I don't know if you've heard of it. That was published in early July. I can give a little summary. So it, it was this two to three paragraph letter that was published on Harper's signed by hundreds of famous intellectuals, writers, professors, basically warning of a kind of illiberalism in the left. So just a a toxic environment in which small things, can, can potentially get you in big trouble regarding freedom of speech. So, you know, it's it's it was a lot of kind of center-to-center-right thinkers who have felt assaulted in a way, I think, by the rise of, of more diverse and progressive voices in the mainstream who have kind of created a culture shift, I think, in that certain things are no longer appropriate to say or to print or certain other ideas are more in vogue that might've seemed very radical not too long ago. I don't know if I'm making myself understood, but it's kind of this idea that there's like a cancel culture basically. And that if you don't toe the party line and kind of say things that are very, politically correct then you're you're banished and and you're con- so th- the letter was about that and it just caused this like enormous stir in most newsrooms in the com in the country you know about that question like is it true that if you are a conservative in the times or the atlantic or any liberal pub- publication you're not allowed to speak up on a wide range of issues like your counterparts in the left might be. Is it true that if you're a white man, you can't say certain things that maybe the staffers of color can say? Like it's it's those questions. And to be honest, I, I don't even know where I fall in this. I, I feel like it's a very US problem. Um that is tied to just the very complicated race dynamics and and identity politics and kind of diversity that is in this country and the and the way immigrants have been treated historically and it it 's very complicated historically, so I feel very outsider to these ideas and and problems. And I think that allows me to see points on both sides and feel like often all sides involved in these conversations are not giving their opponents, for lack of a better word, enough of the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I I often feel that, you know, just to stick within like political ideologies, I often feel like, people who lean more to the left can be very prejudiced against conservative people. And, you know, assume that if you voted for Trump, for example, you you are racist, like you are a pig and a bigot. And I understand that impulse, but I also know that, you know, the Salvadoran taxi driver who... I met 4 months ago in New York, voted for Trump and he's not a racist or a bigot so there must be other explanations behind his political beliefs and 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 same you know for the people on the right with people on the left who you know they might say oh these these college students are so sensitive and you know now you can't say anything because everything's politically incorrect and it's like well that's the I don't know so I I feel like I see kind of a lot a kernel of truth and and justified anger or confusion on like all sides so I, I'm very troubled by the polarization because I feel like ultimately actually if people were more willing to listen to each other and not assume the worst they would realize that they have more in common than they could ever think of i don't know i think a lot of these yeah i'll, I'll i've been blabbering so i'll leave it at that but
1: that that, that was a great answer is I that an
2: answer that
1: was, and that's also just a huge question to answer with whether whether it's in the journalistic realm question. or greater society as a whole <laughs> I, I almost feel like you delivered the lines that in an ideal world we could have fed you you like captured there i think one of the reasons we kind of came to this (laughs) idea of like conversations as a whole and facilitating it they just don't seem to exist as easily as one might hope that they do in this world with such polarization and ostracism from both sides and whatnot so yeah i think you know conversations just within the theme of what we're trying to do is super key and you know recognizing that they need to be had and then the harder challenge of how to proceed with having them or even You know from a collectivistic point of view of a group but then also individually you have to like recognize that to be able to yourself engineering so big thoughts to have and oh yeah yeah yeah. go on yeah yeah, i got you because i was (laughs) was recently in another sphere where this is a common question and i think alex might have some familiarity with this oh no i was gonna say with comedy in the stand-up comedy world I was recently listening to Conan O'Brien's podcast, and he was also talking about the shift of, uh, you know, cancel culture and things like that in a, in a sphere that's
2: mm-hmm.
1: also media and entertainment and where, like, boundaries are being pushed of what type of content you can put out there. Um, so it's just interesting seeing these parallels and just, like, you know, in every sector of, of society that these conversations are, like, challenging to figure out, like, oh, can I say this or should I have this joke be told by someone else who, you know, might better be better suited for like delivering this slightly controversial piece because of identity or whatever it is.
2: Totally. I mean, and I think that I do believe that there are, wait, let me backtrack. I, I wish that we lived in a society where if you have that question, like, can I tell this joke given my identity and given the history behind whatever you know words you're using or uh, the context where you're giving them and if you don't know that I wish that we could live somewhere where you could ask the question or perhaps pose the joke in a way that is like I'm not sure if this if this is fine but I'm kind of testing it out and that you know with the help of people who are part of that conversation you can then kind of attain an answer and not have it be this thing where you kind of either self-censor or or you say it and then and then you're labeled up something awful like I, I don't know I wish that there were more willingness to make mistakes and ask uncomfortable, awkward things and see what happens. I don't feel like I belong to a work place where that is like super possible. And I think it's partially just like the society.
1: It almost seems easier to, you know, it's this whole cost benefit analysis that I feel everyone is consistently running in their heads of like, oh, if I admit to this, how much am I going to lose versus the amount of growth I can have and in the ideal world, it's like, you know, there's minimal loss, but with the opportunity for just like a lot of growth and like huge reward where you can learn, okay, if I say this, this is what that entails and maybe you weren't aware of it, as opposed to the alternative case where it's like, you never bring it up, you never learn about it, and you just kind of keep it to yourself and that's not good for anyone.
2: To- totally. I-, I recently read... I recently read a couple of essays by this semi-forgotten evangelical philosopher and theologian, and I'm not religious at all, but a lot of the essays were about Christ's command to love your enemies, just as you love your family and, and your friends. And it's very simple obviously the idea and 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 it's around I mean I don't know it's not obviously the first time that I've encountered it but I've been thinking about it a lot because you know there are kind of disgusting figures in society that I think I have tended to kind of shut away and shun like a Nazi you know I don't want anything to do with a Nazi like that it's hard to imagine somebody more reprehensible but but you know i don't know with this love your enemy kind of thing in mind i've been thinking more like well i would want the nazi to stop being a nazi like i would i would want to kind of i don't know work toward a remedial like redemptive approach and as opposed to just hating him or her like working with them so that they can see you know the fault in their ways and change like it, there's there's nothing gained from keeping an enemy and 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 you know perhaps just like imprisoning them or i don't know i feel like i believe in rehabilitation and in giving second chances and and in still kind of trying to understand how a person came to believe awful things or to do awful things so that's been helpful for me in like keeping me not polarized because I, I think it's very easy actually within the you know if you're consuming news every day to just kind of grow cynical and And to pick a side and to feel like they're the good guys and girls and gals and then they're the bad ones you know and you always want to be with the good ones and it's i don't think it's a very good way of thinking about humans or life like
0: no one's born bigoted like you if like it's one thing i guess we'll use the nazi example like you it's it's one thing to like say like you know like the The headline if you will is like oh like so and so is like friends with a nazi but then you could you could look at it from the different angle and show this person's like maybe like first like two or three decades of life was like you know just a regular upbringing a regular life and then like you know something happened there's like a a trauma or like there's like a, a pivot point at which they start like i guess falling to one ideology if you were to look at say, a biopic or, like, a, a movie of that person's life and, like, 80% is this, like, great regular life and then the last, like, 20% is, like, this crazy thing that happened to them, then, you know, you, I feel like your your emotions around that headline would be a little different.
2: Totally. Or or the opposite, like, people who, who made a lot of mistakes when they were young and then change and then kind of shift course and, and do a lot of good after. It's hard to, it's hard to instill or like include complexity in a headline. That's nearly impossible, actually, I think, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, do you, do you feel like you have the same difficulty trying to capture like the scope of something in even like a however many word article?
2: Totally, yeah. It's so hard to to write, um, with, you know, even just like a thousand words sounds like a lot, but it's, it's nothing, um, especially about topics that people don't know that much of about, you know, and you feel like you need to give some context. It's so hard.
0: Is it like, who's maybe it's a big question. Is there a responsibility for the story to go beyond those words? And like to go beyond that 1000 word limit, and if so, whose responsibility is that?
2: I mean, if I understand your question right, like, is do, do you mean just for any given article, like, should it do more than just, yeah, what it's confined to do by its words? Like, I definitely think the Atlantic, specifically, and, and its, its competitors try to to include enough questions and complexity in any given article that you know you'll finish it and of course you'll come out with something but it'll it'll leave you curious and kind of disturbed in a way by the subject matter such that you'll then kind of go and read more about it or you know you'll try to inform yourself or you'll be on the lookout so I I think that definitely like Even though a thousand words is nothing, you can still kind of leave a little taste and just give, seduce a little bit the reader to, to then just stay curious. I mean, I think you can definitely do that with a thousand words. And I think the best, the best articles, the best content that we publish certainly tries to do that perhaps not always successfully, but I think the hope is there.
1: On this, I was wondering if we could possibly kind of with a a specific example into your article that you did back in May, kind of run run through some of these points um, of how that maybe kind of in this article. And so for listeners, so Anna did an article back in May uh, titled Venezuela's coronavirus crisis is different. so maybe with kind of what Alex mentioned and you know, trying to put everything that you could into this one article and taking you know these interviews and stories that you yourself did, um, and how that whole process looked like of how you, you know take information from one set of people and then pass it on to just a larger audience.
2: Totally, it was so difficult, and I could not stress enough how valuable and important my editor was in the, in the process of, of just structuring and crafting the story and just editors in general are, I mean, they're, they're kind of forgotten because they don't get a byline and you just might not know they exist. Um, if, If you didn't see them kind of in a masthead or something, but you know, in this case specifically, because I'm Venezuelan and I I have such a vested interest in what goes on back home, these interviews, there was so much information that I wanted to include that I ultimately did not, that was absolutely harrowing and moving and I thought relevant, but that the average reader of The Atlantic would just probably not understand within the span of like a thousand to a thousand two hundred words you know just because they're not as well read on what's been going on in Venezuela over the last four to five years perhaps they just don't care that much about I don't know international affairs so I think the pro the the process of going through each interview and trying to imagine what somebody who knows nothing about Venezuela could not care less about Venezuela would think reading that transcript what would stand out what would be kind of the most surprising unsettling bits of information and trying to extract those from all my interviews and then at the same time trying to find a narrative and connections between what everybody said because you know despite the topic being the same the coronavirus and quarantine and how are people dealing with this the experiences are so different across socioeconomic background across gender across age across cities in the country that it was tricky to be able to just connect everything in a way that made sense and and again i think just talking with my editor was really helpful just somebody not in my head and and i think ultimately the article took also kind of an international stance on a lot of things it it, it was helpful to find that a lot of things that were happening in Venezuela for example the strictness of the quarantine the fact that the military is out on the streets is not something that's just happening in Venezuela it's also happening in countries in Africa like Ethiopia and Ghana if I, if I am not misremembering it was often helpful also to just find examples abroad of things that were happening in Venezuela because it then allowed me to make the argument that this wasn't just kind of like a one-off. It's part of a phenomenon that happens when certain conditions are in place. And so that kind of helped also give structure and form. But it's funny how to write this, a big chunk of my energy was devoted to trying to get outside myself and try to imagine what somebody unlike myself would think of all these materials so it it was kind of like an alienation I don't know process to try to actually make sense of the reporting that I did I don't know that that's common or that people use that methodology often, but it was very necessary because otherwise, I mean, just given the publication that I was, that I was pitching this to, you know, obviously if I were writing for like a Venezuelan newspaper or magazine, like that would not be necessary because people reading it would just care, but that's not a given in the US that would, people would care about anything outside the borders, unfortunately.
1: One question I did have as a follow up on that with the actual reporting, because you mentioned both a couple of things, one, you know, the sort of spread of people that you were interviewing, and then also taking this information and the audience that you were catering to, how much you let that play into the actual interviewing and conversations, you know, of like, How much do you guide the conversations when you're interviewing versus how much do you just like let them and then like later filter like what's back and forth sort of look like
2: i mean i think one of the most helpful pieces of advice i got from an older colleague early on in my time at the atlantic was to be comfortable with silence and to trust sources so Often, you know, when I came to these interviews, I interviewed a doctor, I interviewed kind of like a domestic worker um, who was at home, I interviewed a public school teacher, a student, I I did have a lot of questions, and and some of them very guiding questions, that that would take the conversation to a very specific place that I wanted to arrive. But I tried actually to suppress that instinct and started off with very general questions about their situations, their lives, what had been happening over the last two months, how they felt. And I also tried to pretend I knew less than I did so that they could just give me more explanation on the record that somebody who has not been following the Venezuelan situation would need so that I didn't need to fill that myself. So, you know, it wasn't until conversations got very, very, very quiet and it was clear that there was just nothing else that they wanted to say that I would kind of ask questions that would steer you know, in whatever direction I wanted to go. And, and you know, some people like myself actually are very disorganized when they speak and with their thoughts. So you have to interject. There's no other way, you know, because otherwise, like, you might want to talk about cars and they'll go on and on about puppies. I don't know. Like, it'll just be something completely off topic. So I, I did interrupt. But I would say... The mix between just pretending I know less than I do and listening, listening, listening. It worked for me. I mean, there are a lot of different ways of interviewing for sure. but
1: It's really good to hear because I think as us, as podcast hosts and being interviewers, you know, it's always cool (laughs) just doing on a whim and just hanging out with people. So it's always cool. You know, at a professional level and grade that like you're doing.
2: Well, no, I'm not professional, but I'm I'm a I, I don't fit very well with the with the journalism crowd actually because I didn't. Most of my colleagues went to journalism school. They did a ton of journalism in in college. They have a lot of experience. I do not, so I, I don't actually know how I ended up there. I I, I feel like I'm an amateur. So you to interview better than I do. I don't have a podcast.
0: Well, anyone can have a podcast these days. It took us like 20 minutes to set it up. So
2: You you have a professional microphone on you.
0: $30 from China. Oscar has the same one. (laughs) I I did want to ask one last question, especially with regards to your article about Venezuela during the time of coronavirus. I can imagine since it's all about like livelihood and, you know, people's Mm -hmm. like lives and like incomes. And health are at stake how do you I I can imagine it it becomes like a very emotional topic how do you kind of like get into like that space where you're kind of towing the line between you you want to like get facts and you do want to write a story but then there's also this human story kind of like unfolding in front of you and how do you like manage that how do you get into like that mindset of wanting to ask the difficult and emotional questions
2: it's really hard I I tried to prep a lot before the interview so I tried to imagine what they might say what might go wrong what might be something really hard to to hear and to just mentally prepare for that I, I can't say that it was always super effective I mean I did have certain interviews where I was completely frozen by the responses I got, because especially given that I'm also Venezuelan, however, I live in the U S in an incredibly privileged setting. I have had a trillion opportunities and it's, it's just very, Ugh! I don't know how to explain. Like it it's, just in your face in an awful way when you see people who you it could have been you and and they're just in a in a diametrically opposite situation um in fact i think the hardest interview i had was with this this teacher who i start the article off with she hasn't had a fridge in months going on like nearing the year mark such that she needs to salt her her food to preserve it. I mean, this like medieval technique of food preservation, and she has this little girl who's sick, and she adores her. and And she was telling me about the little girl, and that I, I did, I mean, I would like nearly cried. And and actually, sometime later after the article came out, we were still in touch. And my sisters obviously, like I've told them all about this and my oldest sister just felt so bad for this woman that she reached out to her and and kind of donated some medicine to her daughter. So, you know, is is that a conflict of interest? Like I wrote this article about this woman and then my sister gave her some medicine, like maybe, but I, I couldn't get her off my head. And, you know, once you have a relationship of some kind with somebody you're talking to them. Like, like my sister and me, to be frank, like couldn't let that kid die. Like, so, you know, it's that classic, uh, there's a famous photograph of this, this bird, you know, those birds that eat carcasses kind of eating off this like live baby in the middle of, I don't know, the Middle East or something. And this photographer took the photograph and it's a classic, ethical conundrum that is presented in in all journalism classes of like should this photographer have taken this photo like why wasn't this person helping this kid or like should they have helped the kid before or after is that like intruding in i don't know your subject and is that ethical or not i mean yeah those are complicated questions I feel like I am more about the human than the story, but certainly some people are more about the story and than the human and and I respect that, but it was so hard to stay professional and serious and ask these questions and and, and as you said, just very personal things like who who wants to talk to a stranger about i don't know their family dynamics or their income or it's really weird. I I think that these people that I spoke with specifically did it out of need and desperation and hoping that if more people know about it, then more people might do something about it, which is kind of the naive expectation I came with as well. And I mean, the hope that I have, who knows, where the article might go. It's just one article. That was a tough question, Alex.
0: (laughs) Sorry, I'm I'm not trying to throw
1: curveballs.
2: No, no, it's a good question. I would have wanted to ask a question like that.
1: Difficult work you're doing, and uh, I'm I'm glad that you're able to go out there and brave and go through these pieces, and I, I know it's definitely, I'm sure, just a rocky journey and a lot of questions that you may not have had Anticipated at the beginning of even starting this, what what it would lead to or turn out to, totally. Um, but it's great seeing your work. You know, if we can, we can switch to a possibly lighter note as we <laughs> potentially wrap this up. Uh, with Alex yeah. and I like to occasionally do a couple of like rapid fire questions to just ease out conversations. Uh, these are these yeah. are more. You know, sometimes we have some pretty bizarre and wonky ones. Maybe we'll throw one, up, one in if it comes <laughs> to mind. But these are kind of within the, the realm of conversation and communication. So the first one is would you identify yourself as an introvert or an extrovert?
2: Is there a middle one? An intro extra
1: Oscar only put two or... options on this I put two options. Word doc. <laughs> binary binary here.
2: <laughs> binary then introvert, I suppose. Because of the energy, right? Like you're, you get the energy. Yeah, that's definitely
1: yeah. how they define. It. Yeah, so that works.
2: Okay, then introvert.
0: Awesome. Would you rather be an interviewer or an interviewee? It's very meta. Interviewer. Interviewer.
1: Interviewer.
2: Okay.
1: Yeah. Okay. Next one. For some odd reason, you can either two times slow or two times fast for the rest of your life. Which one would you pick? Why'd you put this one in,
2: Oscar? two times slow but i feel like i would lose half my friends because they would <laughs> they wouldn't be able to have the patience to talk to me but i i would need to go slow
1: okay slow it is is
2: that the unpopular answer
1: well, oh you,
0: you're so the first data, data point so, so we'll see
2: you've never asked that oh interesting. we'll aggregate the data I mean, I... yeah
1: that one just came to mind because You know, when you watch videos or listen to things, sometimes you change the speed on them. And so (laughs) like, oh, what if it it were permanently stuck?
2: Actually, I would rather my voice be, like, lower than, like... Yeah,
0: chipmunk. Because
2: if it goes fast, (laughs) yeah, I don't want to be a chipmunk.
1: Fair enough. No No, way. Yeah, get a nice, deep, deep, slow voice. Uh Okay.
2: (laughs) Deep voice, yeah. Like, if people thought, like, over the phone that I wasn't, that I didn't
1: look how I looked like that would be funny.
2: <laughs> yeah, that as opposed to this like shrill yeah,
1: screaming at you just yeah. loud da, da, da. yeah <laughs> no no I would hate
2: that
1: awesome
0: this is uh, out of my curiosity I'm going off script a little bit Oscar I'm so sorry no it's okay um, it's okay <laughs> top, top uh top five bands that you're listening to these days like on on the quarantine Ooh. playlist is five not no. n- not
2: enough? <laughs> no, no, I bumped no, no. it up five. mentally from
0: three because I thought three would be too tough.
2: No, 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 no. Five is enough. One is Vashti Bunyan. She's she's well, I'm not gonna describe them, but Vashti. Um Natalia La Furcade. she's a Mexican uh, singer. The third might be Yo la tengo. I think it's an American band. Winter and i have just one missing probably cocteau twins did you know any of those i, bands I don't know twins? any of these bands that's <laughs> awesome cocteau twins, i can text you please. cocteau twins is awesome yeah i can text you some good albums yeah so th-
1: you know this, that final question was all self-serving just this this is how we yeah i'm
0: just trying to collect more more music now that i'm, I'm making <laughs> long commutes gotta fill that up with with something
1: there we go. We got something. This, this this is how we extract value given that we're not monetized in any way yet. Like <laughs> we got to take the small win The but. cultural cultural payment. Yeah, cultural payment. And as well as getting to spend time with awesome people. Um yeah, so thank you very much Anna. Um, yeah, yeah, thanks Anna.
2: Thank you so yeah. much. This is so fun.